Let's talk to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is today, this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day. And a blessing to look into the faces of your children, men and women who have knelt at the cross and received the free grace of God through your sacrifice on Calvary. They're Christians. And to look into the eyes of some who are not sure today. And what a privilege to have them here as we open up the Word of God. Lord, it's a great privilege to stand in this pulpit. It's a great privilege to open this book. It's a great privilege to take your name upon our lips. You're the Almighty God. We love you. And pray that you would be honored in these next few minutes and that you would work in the hearts of the dear people who have gathered in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you follow the news, then you know this world can be a violent, dangerous, sensual, depraved, defiling, godless, ugly place. And tragically, that hits close to home a lot. Sometimes even on Sunday morning when I'm sitting at my desk and the phone rings and I feel like I'm alone in the building and I pick up the phone, I hear stories of the worst kind of tragedy like I did this morning. Tragically, sometimes that doesn't just hit the close to home. Sometimes that hits in our own homes. And today the, the text that we've come to in our journey with Jacob there through his life is a text that a pastor is tempted to skip because it's so ugly. It's so shocking. And I actually thought a great deal and talked a great deal about skipping the passage. Maybe this is not something you preach about publicly because it's so painful to go over. And yet I don't believe that's true. I believe that God would have us deal with it. And he has it here for a reason. When you ask a look at a passage of Scripture and you want to ask, Lord, what, would you, what do you have for me in this part of your word, God's word, the Bible, God, the God-breathed book, the Bible, what, what do you want me to learn from this? And you look at a passage and you ask yourself, God, what do you want me to learn from this? One of the best questions you can ask is, what, what is this passage here for? What, why was this passage originally placed in the Bible? Who is the original author? Who was the original audience? And if you answer that question, it's often clear what the application to you, to your life, to your family, to, like to this church would be. And that's very, very true. If you, when I read this passage, I'm going to give you a little synopsis of the passage. I'm going to read it briefly. We're going to get in it and out of it because it's such a painful passage to read. And yet I believe it has a work to do in us. It's really not one of the happy texts of the Bible. But after we read this and after we examine this, then we're going to ask this question, why is this here? And then we're going to try to answer that question, and I think it will be helpful to us. I'm confident that it can be greatly helpful to us. It's uh, Genesis 34 is the text today. So if you have your Bible with you, open please to Genesis chapter 34. And I want to read to you parts of this story that's found in Genesis 34. And it's a story about... Jacob and uh, his sons and his daughter Dinah. To give you a little outline before we read it, what's happening in this story is that Jacob's beloved daughter Dinah, only daughter recorded in the Bible there, uh, basically goes into town and is horribly treated. And then when she returns, the man who mistreated her offers to marry her. 
offers a dowry. Her brothers then come and they propose that this dowry is accepted and they give some terms, some conditions. And as they give these terms and conditions, when the men of the land comply with the terms and conditions, the terms and conditions were circumcision, on the third day of this, they came in and there was a great massacre. This is a very ugly, very shocking story, and it forces you to ask the question, God, why did you put this story in the Bible? But let's look at this story now from God's word. Genesis 34. In verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. The soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. But Shechem spoke to his father, Hamer, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And then Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard it, the men were grieved and very angry because they had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. He asked her then in verse 8, please give her to me as a wife. Verse 11, Shechem said to her father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. In verse 12, give me this young woman as a wife, he says. In verse 13, but the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor's father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah. Their sister Jacob was a deceiver in his youth in particular. And then he was deceived in almost a humorous way by Laban. And now his sons would deceive in an unspeakably horrible way. And verse 15 says, But on this condition we will consent to you if you become as we are, if every male of you is, is circumcised. Verse 16, The young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And they also had, if you notice in the next few verses, you read this on another time, you'll notice that they had, the people of the land had some greedy motives as well. They said, why not? We'll kind of intermarry here and we'll get all their livestock and so forth. So verse 24 says every male was circumcised. Came to pass on the third day, verse 25, when they were in the plain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males, and they killed Hamer and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep and their oxen, their donkeys, and what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives. They took captive and plundered even all that was in the houses. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among Canaanites and Parasites, and since I'm a new, new and few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I'll be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Again, if we honor the Word of God, the Bible, we believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. In other words, uh, we believe... The Bible is verbally inspired, every word of it. Plenary means the whole thing. The whole Bible is inspired by God. Even the ugly parts, the hard, shocking, difficult parts. Why did God put this passage in the Bible? 
What was the, who's the original author? Moses, God, and Moses together wrote the Pentateuch. And, the, and it was delivered with probably with Deuteronomy to the people of Israel as they had been in a sojourn in Egypt, and they were now coming, and they were poised to go into the land, into Canaan. They would call this the conquest of Canaan. God's people now, the sons of Israel, many hundreds of years later, the sons of Jacob, or Israel, are now going to go into Canaan. They're going to go into the land, and they're going to they're be given the land by God that he promised to them in the, in the Abrahamic covenant and the promises to the, to the patriarchs. And this is the setting. The original author there was Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The, the original audience were these people that were ready to go in, and they were going to face a very godless, a very sensual, a very defiling place to live and people to be among. But their job was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So while you're trying to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, to all the people of the earth, to every city, to other people, how do you keep from tragedy? How, could, how do you keep from defilement? And this is kind of the setting. I want you to notice three things that help us to answer why this shocking, ugly story is here. I'll tell you two now and one later. One, there is great evil all around us. There was great evil around them. There would be great evil all around the children of Israel as they would go into Canaan. And you and I live in the midst of great evil. There's great evil all around us. The potential for defilement, even where you and I live, is very great. For our sons and for our daughters, the potential of defilement is very great. There is an abnegation of responsibility by a lot of moms and dads for their sons and daughters. Because that's what our culture does. They let them kind of roam free, do their own thing. Listen to what men of God from the past wrote about this text. A person I admired greatly growing up was an, was an old guy named John R. Rice. About 60 years ago, his, this is what he wrote about this. According to the law of God, fathers and mothers are responsible for the virtue of their daughters. The modern idea of young people dating without chaperones, sometimes riding in cars alone, sometimes left in a home or at a park or at the beaches without a chaperone, is not only contrary to the scripture, but it's disgraceful and at least a sin and heartbreak for many. That's interesting, isn't it? Sixty years ago, that's the kind of preaching you would hear in a place like this. Come a long way, baby. huh? Calvin said it like this a couple of years before that. Calvin wrote, Dinah is ravished because having left her father's house, she wandered about more freely than is proper. Interesting, Calvin understood that she wasn't personally completely responsible for what happened to her. You understand, Calvin wasn't saying that. But anyway, he, he goes on and says, she ought to have remained quietly at home. As both the apostle teaches, and nature itself dictates, for girls, the virtue is suitable, which the proverb applies to women, that they should be oikorgos, keepers in the house. Therefore, fathers of families are taught to keep their daughters under, under discipline, or, or he's saying to care for them and watch over them. If they desire to uh, preserve them free from all dishonor, if vain curiosity was so heavily punish and the daughter of holy jacob not less danger hangs over weak virgins of this day if they go too boldly and eagerly into public assemblies alone and excite the passions of youth towards themselves for it is not to be doubted that moses in part cast blame of the offense upon dinah when he says she went out to see the daughters of the land whereas she ought to have remained under her mother's eyes in the tent and initially we would hear something like this from calvin so many years ago and go wow he was an old-fashioned type but our daughters are being defiled in the land. 
history. Leon Wood, one of my dad's seminary professors, wrote a very lucid book, a survey of Israel's history. And he said, history shows that less developed cultures are normally absorbed by those more advanced. In years which followed, Israel did not become absorbed Israel did not become absorbed by Canaan, but she did experience pronounced influence. Had this involved only material culture, such as pottery manufacture, city construction, or methods of farming, there could even have been benefit. But when it came to include ways of thinking, ideas, intermarriage, especially religious beliefs and practice, then the harm was great. And the same harm is true today. This is happening here and now because we live in an evil time and we live among people who are evil and great tragedy comes very close to home and great tragedy comes into the households of God's people sometimes. So it's still an issue. So you've got to say one of the reasons that this is here is just to shock us, just to warn us that we live among people and we want to be a blessing to them, but there really is a danger of defilement. There really is a danger of influence. That's a fact. And that's one of the reasons a passage like this is here. It doesn't have to be that way. I think of Andy Thompson, kid in our church. When we were, uh, when I left that church, Andy was a pretty small kid. And I remember the night we left. When we left, he behaved the way you ought to behave when a pastor leaves the church. He just cried like a baby. It was wonderful. He just cried sobbing and crying. I'm like, I love this kid. What a great kid. And it turns out he really was a good egg. His folks, and I'll be very honest with you, you know, you know, we as Christian parents, we struggle about how to educate our kids and what means of education we should use. And, and Andy's parents put him in a public school. And I have to be very honest with you, I wondered about that, you know, because in the public school, you are not allowed to teach and preach about Jesus Christ, right? And you know that. In the public school, you are, however, instructed to teach things that are not true. And we know that that's true. We have public school teachers, public school administrators here. They'll be the first ones to tell you that's true. It's a place where you're supposed to be hush-hush about Jesus. Hopefully students aren't that way, though, because everybody can talk about what they love, and they say there will be prayer in schools as long as there are tests in school, you know. But Andy went to a public school, and I wondered how he would do. Andy was a good kid. He was a great athlete, and he's a good kid, and he knew the Lord, and he loved the Lord. He was the kind of kid that people would uh, follow. When people told dirty jokes, he didn't laugh. Uh, when people invited him to parties that, that weren't the kind of parties you ought to go to, he didn't go. When girls showed interest in him who weren't godly girls, he didn't pay attention. As a matter of fact, what he did do, including you know, like pitching for the baseball team and, and being a starting point guard for the basketball team, was he invited kids to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He invited the other team members and the other cheerleaders and the kids to go to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And that entire high school practically turned out for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He had a stellar testimony for Jesus Christ in the midst of a very pagan place where very bad things were being taught all the time. And he was faithful in that. God strengthened him as an unusual young man, like a Daniel in Babylon. He's faithful in that. And today, he went off, he went to college, he trained, and he's back in that same school as a teacher in that same school. And he's standing up for Jesus Christ today in that school. He's a faithful member of a local church, and he is willing to suffer. I can tell you more about his story. These are beautiful stories that can be true, but they're not always that way, are they? Everybody who goes to Babylon isn't a Daniel, right? And there is a danger of defilement. Am I right? There is a danger of influences. There's a danger of of lies kind of working their way down into the souls of our sons, of our daughters, of ourselves. This is true. 
There is great evil all around us. But there's a second point that we ought to recognize from this story. There's great evil, there's great potential for evil within us. We could debate about how culpable, how guilty Dinah was in going to town. Josephus says she was at one of the festivals. This is just something young girls tend to do. Want to be with their friends, want to go out and see what's happening. We could debate about that. Scholars, they kind of debate about whether she has some responsibility there. It certainly was Jacob's responsibility to watch over her. Why didn't he do that? Is it because she was the daughter of not his favorite wife? Is it because in a polygamous situation, which did not please God, that the older brothers now are taking a place of trying to protect the younger daughter, and the, the family's messed up. And as a result of that, there's this heartache, this ugly, ugly story in the Bible. But it shows that there, she was going into a place where people were evil, and they would perpetrate evil upon her. But obviously by her brother's reaction to this, initially I think in a, in a place like this, the first thing that happens when we hear about because of our flesh, because of our fallenness, the first thing we hear, we think, I think, at least in my, the men in our family, the first thing that we think when we read a story like this is very creative. You know? You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow, that was, you know, you, you mess with my sister, and, and we're going to fix you, all of you. You're all in serious trouble, you know? And the first, the first reaction in the flesh is like, that's very creative. Wipe them out. But then again, if you translate that to like your neighborhood, and you have somebody who lives in your neighborhood who perpetrates some horrible thing, and somebody came and killed you and all your sons and all the other fellows in the neighborhood. Demonstrated that the sensuality, the godlessness, the violence of the culture had found its way into the hearts of the sons of Jacob. They had this potential for great injustice. They had this potential for great evil in them. And we are kidding ourselves if we think that we kidding ourselves if we think there's great potential for evil within us. Simeon and Levi and the others, deceit, violence, theft, irreverence, they took circumcision, which should have been a holy thing, and they drugged that idea, that beautiful, sacred idea that God had given us a special sign. They were irreverent at this point, very irreverent. And later on, this is, this is going to follow them like a shadow throughout their lives. They're going to be restricted from things in the future because of their behavior here. This was not pleasing to God. This was not good. It's only our flesh that tells us that that was a creative response to what happened to their sister. That wasn't a legal, righteous response to what had happened to their sister. It's interesting because legal, righteous response to what had happened to their sister. It's interesting because I, I hear ringing in my ears, uh, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Yes, they need purifying. We need purifying. You know this. You know that Christianity is not a do-gooder society. You know that, right? You know that it's not like the people that, are, that get together and they try to do a bunch of nice things and good, that they, those are the people that God accepts and that God is pleased with. You know that's not true, right? You understand there is great evil in 
each of us and none of us can do enough good to counter all the violations of God's law that we're responsible for only by the death of Christ, which is alluded to, it's hinted at in this passage, and certainly it's the scope of this story all the way to Christ and to Calvary, only by the work of Jesus Christ forgiving us and cleansing us and the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us can we overcome the great potential for evil that's in us. Listen, this ought to sober us. This ought to frighten us. We ought to be serious about the fact that we really live in a bad place with a lot of bad people who are eager to do a lot of bad things. I mean, my goodness, folks, read the paper, talk to people. You know that's true. And there's great evil within us, even like religious church-going people are not above this. They have within them the potential of great evil. So then, further, why is this here? I will tell you this. I believe chapter 34 is here so that chapter 35 looks especially sweet. That's what I believe. I believe chapter 34 is never to be read without chapter 35. And so I want to show you what it says in chapter 35 because it's almost as scandalous and almost as shocking as the story itself. Because immediately after this big, ugly mess, what happens? What's God going to do now? What is God going to do? Is God going to sweep in and wipe them out and start over again? Is there going to be another great worldwide flood? Is it going to rain fire from heaven? What's God going to do now to these people who did these evil things? What's going to happen now? God gently, mercifully speaks to Jacob, and he calls Jacob back to Bethel again. Chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments and then let us rise up and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. And so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and their earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities around them and they didn't, that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan and he and all the people who were with him and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, God of the house of God, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. This is a shocking, this is an amazing, this is a wonderful thing to see, especially to people like you and I who have felt all too close the devastating effects of the sinfulness that's in the culture around us and our own potential for sinfulness in our own lives. We think, God, how am I ever going to escape this vile defilement that's all around me, he says, gently, come back to Bethel and meet me again where I once met you. I want to remind you, there's some interesting things here, and I want to show them to you. When you go to the hospital, I notice something. When you go to the elevator of the hospital, I'm thinking about the one in Wyandotte there. You go to the elevator, there's buttons on the wall, and this is like, uh, and I'm going to be out of my depth. I'm not going to call this the right thing, but there's a thing that you can wash your hands with there. Right? You punch it, and it's got the little stuff you wash your hands Somebody wants to tell me what that is. Go ahead. Hand-washing stuff. Yeah. And uh, disinfectant, right? And why is that? Because the people that work at that hospital over in Wyandotte are mean. That's why. Nasty people. They, when people come in there, what do they do? They go, you got germs and disease. You, uh, we hate you. We're clean. You're not, right? I mean, some of you I know work in that hospital, so you're, you're with me on this, right? 
I mean, you know that's not true. They They hate germs over there. They love people and they hate germs. They're committed to health. But that's one of the sickest places around. Am I right? You know, sick people over there. Every imaginable disease is going on over there. That's why they have the disinfectant on the wall, because you want to stay clean, because you don't want somebody that's already weak from one disease to get the disease of the last person that you worked on. That's a train wreck right there, right? You don't want that to happen. They have a name for that. They want you to cleanse it. But in the church, what we're supposed to do now is we're supposed to change all the labels, and we're supposed to call things that are evil, well, you know, we don't want to be mean to people. I'll tell you what's mean to people. Mean to people is when they have germs and you don't tell them they got germs. Mean to people is when they're dying and they're defiled and there's a danger of defilement all around them and there's a danger of defilement within and you never tell them that. You don't tell them, hey, wash your hands. Hey, it's not that we don't like people. It's that we don't like germs. It's that we don't like disease. It's that we don't like death. It's that we fear God. It's that we fear Satan. We must say, this is an ugly, evil world that hates God. All around you is potential for evil, for defilement, for infection. It's very real. It should be very shocking. We are talking about our daughters here. We're talking about our wives. We're talking about our sons. The people that we love, they will be destroyed and they will be defiled by this evil world. And then within us, in our, even when you come to church, like coming to a hospital, you still got to wash your hands because there's people here. And those people, even if they're Bible-toting, you know, they still have the potential of great evil within them, pulpit, pew, you name it. It's true of all of us. We don't realize that. What's going to happen is we're not going to be motivated to go to Bethel when we're called. Do you get it? Here's the deal. Three points. One, there is great evil around us. Point number two, there's great potential for evil within us. Point number three, so let these sobering realities draw us into communion with God. That's what motivated. How did Jacob get his family to lay down their idols? You know, Rachel had been hanging on to those idols for quite a long time, hadn't she? Stolen from her father's house when the guys raided town. What did they pick up there? Jacob says, lay down the idols. They bury them. They give up their idols. They give up their competing affections. They go and they cleanse themselves and they change their clothes. And they're going to church. Why is that? Because the terror of the Lord was on the nations around them. Because they thought they were going to die because of what happened to their sister. Because of the special grace of God. I don't know. But they were willing to go back to Bethel. And maybe it takes a little shock for us to get to Bethel. Maybe it takes a shock of realizing how vile this world is and that, this, that Satan of this world, the prince of the power of the air, he wants to defile our daughters and our sons. Maybe it takes a shock of realizing, wow, I never realized that, that I had such potential for evil in myself that my sons would react in such a violent way. That's what it takes perhaps to get us to have to draw us into communion with God. Do you get that? There's great potential for evil around us. There's great potential for evil within us. And those shocking realities should draw us into communion with God. And that should just amaze us that God is continually calling us into communion with himself. When he could just vaporize us. He could just wipe us out. He could just do without us. But instead he says, you have really made a mess. This is a, this is scandal. This is shocking. This is awful. This is not right. I mean, God would have every reason to kind of wash his hands of the sons of Jacob and says, I don't want to be on dinner. These guys are bad news. But that's not what he does. So this is an amazing thing. And this, this, do, you, do you see the hopefulness of this? Does your heart just sing when you realize, does this mean, God, what I think it means? Does this mean there's potential for losers like me? Does this mean that, God, that even you would work with a depraved person like myself? Does this mean that even though I've had such shocking, horrible things happen in my family that I wouldn't even want to talk about them, that still, God, you would actually take my name 
and say, I'm Jacob's God, I'm Ken Pierpont's God. Can you imagine that? You almost cannot say it. It's just shocking. It's wonderful. It's mercy. It's gospel. It's Calvary. It's Jesus. That's the story. It's wonderful. Let me tell you some things I notice here as quickly as I can. A humorous thing happened. Paul gave me my batteries today, and he goes, because like I've been out of a pulpit for a while, he says, we have fresh batteries because we know you're going to go long today. Like I wasn't planning on it, but, you know, Paul said it's cool, so you guys want to talk to him afterward if I, no, I'm just kidding about that. I'm, I'm just kidding. And Sue's up there, and she goes, we got everything ready for you to preach a long message today. And, and they tell me Pastor Grafe usually quit about 12, and last week he went to 12.15. He is a cool guy. That was, that was close to everything thinking. He's all right. I like it. By the way, oh, well, we'll get to that. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Let me tell you 11 things. <laughs> Let me tell you 11 things I see in Genesis 35 that I think will help you. 11 things as quick as I can give them to you and make them clear. These sobering realities should draw us to communion with God. Number one, listen for the gentle, merciful voice of God when you're brokenhearted over the things that have happened in your family. When you're brokenhearted about reading the paper and you hear about some dear girl being violated, God forbid, Listen for the voice of your gentle Lord calling you into communion with himself. This is what happened in verse 1. Two, worship God. Build an altar. Worship God. David was a great example of this. Whenever the worst things happened to him, the first thing he did was he built an altar and he worshiped God. When his enemies were pursuing him, David built an altar and he worshiped God. That's a good idea. Worship God. Third, lead your family in seeking God. Men, can I appeal directly to you? Be a man. Be a spiritual man. Do it. I don't mean be a thug. I don't mean be a spiritual thug. You know, I don't mean rough your wife up and rough up your kids and browbeat them and preach down their throats and make them do stuff that you haven't done. Please, man, don't go do that. That's like the, the cure is worse than a disease. If you do that, you will drive your wife and your kids away from God, perhaps, certainly away from you. But I am t- talking about a man that says, you know what? Even though I've made mistakes and even though I've let things go and even though I've failed my faithful God in a miserable way, yet today I will wake up and I will go back to Bethel. And I will remember the things that God told me when I was a young man. And I will fulfill my vows to God. And I will be an example to my wife and a loving example to my kids. And I will take them back. Jacob didn't go back to Bethel alone. He brought his family back to Bethel with him. He must have said, look at that stone. Look at that pillar. When I was a young man, God met me here. God said he would be coming and going in my life. God said he was going to bless me. And God said he was going to bless my family. And that's you. That's why we have dressed up today. That's why we have washed our hands today. That's why we have gotten rid of our idols today. That's why we have cleansed ourselves, because we're here to meet with the one true living God. This is what every man ought to do. There ought to be ways, men, that you do that. Creative, loving, joyful ways that you do that. And there are so many ways. Let me just stop here for a minute, and I don't take myself as a great example, but I'll tell you about my faltering attempts, examples of a few of my faltering attempts to do this with my own family. You men probably have better ways of doing this than I'm going to tell you, but I hope they stimulate your heart. I just think about that. Like when you get up in the morning, and many times when my older children were learning to drive, and I was pastoring about an hour away from Grand Rapids where my, most of my hospital calls were, and they were eager to drive, I would say, I have hospital calls to make in the morning, so how would you like to drive me? And they would say, sure, I'd love to drive you. And so that would give me a chance to get up real early in the morning before the sun came up, and we would leave to go to our hospital call in Grand Rapids. And then I would say, well, before we... Do anything else, let's read the Psalms of the day 
or the Proverbs of the day. And then the eyes I drove, they would open their Bibles and we would turn that little light on, the dome light on. And then they would read the, the Proverbs of the day as the sun came up. And then they would read the Proverbs of the day, the Psalms of Proverbs of the day. And then we would pray. Every once in a while, you know, there would just be a special presence of the Lord. And the prayer would go maybe all the way to Nuego or, or all the way to Grant on the way to Grand Rapids. And then we would talk for a while. Or maybe we'd work on our multiplication tables or, or talk about history or, or, or just have some time together. We'd make our call. They would drop me off. I'd make the call. Then I'd come back and get in the car. And I'd always try to plan something nice, stop at a bagel shop or get a cup of coffee and look in their eyes and listen to them and go home. And why did I do that? Well, because they delight me, because they're fun to be with because there's nobody on earth I'd rather spend time with, and because I had this desperate desire to see them know the living God and love God. It's getting up early in the morning and trying to get them to seek the Lord, and they have maybe sometimes it's a, a nighttime thing. And I remember in our family, often we have a lot, of, we have to keep fixing ourselves. We're, 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 we have a lot of needs. And they come and they grieve me. And, and, and often they grieve me because I see that they're my responsibility or, they're, or they're, I'm partly at fault for these things. And I see them. And, I, and there, are, there are times, and I don't want to be too personal, but I, but I want to be direct. There are times we'll sit down maybe on a Sunday night and we'll sit around and, and, and we, won't, we won't turn anything on. We'll just talk. And, and, and sometimes I will have to ask forgiveness. Uh, sometimes I will gently kind of probe things that I've seen that our family kind of needs to lay down, like an idol that's come between us and the Lord, something that's not really pleasing, and maybe it's something that we ought to talk about. And there are times, sweet times, there are precious times, there are times like that when, you know, at first there's a little resistance. You start to talk about it, and here's a lecture from Dad again. Oh, my goodness. And, and then after a while, there's the there's a sweet the sweet help of the Holy Spirit comes in and, and the children, maybe they begin to weep or they begin to ask forgiveness from one another and they start over again. I don't know how else to live the Christian life, but just to go back to Bethel over and over again. Start over. Admit when you've been infected or defiled or that something has boiled up from within you that's not pleasing to the Lord. And take that to the Lord. And you seek Him at night before you go to bed. And then you go to bed with a, with a clear conscience. Sometimes it's kind of like you do this, men, ladies, and maybe you're a lady, you're the head of the house, and this is the responsibility that you have. You do this by taking your kids on a holy pilgrimage. It can be like what we did this summer at Algonquin. What a beautiful place to seek the Lord, call of the loon, rise of the full moon, other Christian people, good food to eat. My goodness, what a place to seek God and to remind them over and over again, we did this because we were seeking God and his creation. Or like last week, I was able to take my sons, my, my oldest son and sons that are here, all of us got to go to a pastor's conference and hear one pastor after another, an hour, an hour and a half each, preaching through a passage of the Bible, just sitting and listening to the Word of God being taught and preached and singing together with other men who love God. This is what, more than any other thing, I want to have my sons infected with, infected with a love for God. My daughters, infected with a love for God. That's why we do what we did yesterday, people going all the way across the state, encouraging young people to preach and sing and do drama and take the name of Jesus and exalt it and apply themselves to effectiveness, to excellence and the things of God. That's why we do those kinds of things. Fathers should be the leaders and stuff like that. They should be most enthusiastic about stuff like that. And why? Because there is a great danger of defilement all around us. Because there is a great danger of defilement that comes from within us. And because there's this wonderful offer of communion. And dads, you lead in that. Show them what it's like to live in fellowship with God. I remember when I was a boy, 
I think it was 14, and my dad didn't have much to work with. He said to my family, this summer we're going to go to the GARBC annual conference. It was in that year. I think, Pastor Pine, you and I talked about it. I'm pretty sure we were both there uh, that year. Imagine he and I, or maybe it was Winona Lake we were talking about. I, I like to think about that. He and I, can you imagine us little guys with our parents, a couple little skinny guys named Ken with their parents, and we never met there. It's amazing. He's still skinny. But anyway, um, we, we went to, uh, we went to, um, we went to uh, uh, Kansas City, 74, 5, 3, 4, 5, something like that. Kansas City. I remember this, though. My parents didn't have much money. See so you know what they did? They got all excited. We're going to go to the JRBC annual conference. We're going to listen to all the preachers. We're going to sing. And my, you know, my parents pastored a little church. You didn't hear big music. You didn't hear a big crowd singing. They were so excited about going. And they didn't have that much money, so they took a tent and they put it in the trunk. And yet, can you imagine our family now? Here we are in our polyester suits, you know, in the 70s, remember? And we're out there, and we're at a campground. And everybody else is having a great time. They're swimming and carrying on or whatever. And we go in a tent, you know, girls first, and they get dressed, and they come out, and guys, and they get dressed, and they come out. Here we've got our Schofield Bibles under our arm. We've got our suits on, and we're going off, you know, one at a time, getting in our car and going downtown. I'll tell you, I am so... rich people went. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I'm I'm kidding about that. What I'm saying is my folks, word of life, where the rich people went. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I'm I'm kidding about that. What I'm saying is my folks, they sought God. They wanted us to seek God. And they went out of their way and they spent money and they spent time. What was that? That was a holy pilgrimage. That was similar to what Jacob was doing when he was saying to his family, we are people who seek God. We are people who love God. And yes, we are afraid of this evil world around us. You understand, this is a beautiful story. For many of you, I think this will be a beautiful story because it's not a perfect story. It's not a picket fence, Norman Rockwell print story, right? It's a story about a guy who got hit really hard by a very devastating, shocking, horrible defilement. And after that, God said, I still love you. I'm still going to use you. There's a way to come back to God. How beautiful is our God. He doesn't want people who've never made a mistake. He wants to take people who've made the worst kinds of mistakes and draw them into the sweetest communion with himself. Don't you just love that about him? Don't you love that? And so listen for a gentle voice of God. Worship God. Lead your family. Number four, identify and renounce all competing affections. That's what they did in verse four. We read that already. Number five, trust God to protect you from defilement and danger. Verse five says that God supernaturally protected them because the people around them wanted to kill them for the horrible thing that they'd done, but God watched over them. So you can compromise if you want to to be safe. It would be better just to be in right standing with God. And if he wants to kill you and take you to heaven, go. If he wants to take care of you, he'll take care of you. And that's why you go ahead and you move to places where there's lots of lost people who do really bad things. You don't go there on your own. You go there as a missionary. There as a representative of Jesus Christ. If something bad happens to you, God will use it for his glory. That's how you think about that. Identify and renounce all competing affections. Trust God to protect you from defilement and danger. Number six, fulfill past promises. Verses six and seven. He's back to Bethel. He's, there's no evidence in the Bible that he can fulfill the things he promised when he did before. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he was avoiding Bethel. Maybe that's one of the reasons God drew him back. Keep seeking him through your sorrows. In verse eight, and this, we don't have really time to give you the details of this, but Deborah comes back into his life. Rebecca, his, Jacob's mother's nurse comes back into his life somehow and she dies and he must have been close to her and it's mentioned here briefly and he buries her and there's this oak of weeping there and Jacob continues to seek God. It's after that that God meets with him again. We continue to seek God through our sorrows. 
in verses 9 through 12, we review the promises of God. And God speaks to him. And at this point is a very significant point because God now is verbally rehearsing and repeating the patriarchal promises of this guy who could very rightfully call himself a loser at this point in his life. And yet God repeats these promises to him. This is how wonderful our God is. And that's what you want to do when you go back to Bethel. You open up your Bible. You say, wait a minute, God, you promised these things. Let me tell you number nine.